Okay, let's turn in our Bibles to Psalm 126, and we continue studying through the Psalms of Ascents. If you have not been with us for the last several weeks, we're doing sermon series through this section of Scripture. There's 15 Psalms from Psalm 120 to Psalm 133, or 34. If you need help finding this, Psalm 126 will be found on page 517. And thankfully, if you're in and out in the next few weeks, this is a great series where each individual psalm is kind of on its own, but yet they're collected together in a series here of pilgrim songs that would have been sung as Jewish believers would have made trips to Jerusalem three times out of the year. So we can take each of them individually, but then collectively. And so if you're not here last week or this week or next week, you can still, I think, follow along with what's going on. I'm going to read the psalm, and then I have three questions for us as we dive right in. So let's read Psalm 126, follow along, starting in verse 1. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negeb. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with them. Three questions for this psalm are as follows. Why would a Jewish person sing this psalm? Question two, why would Jesus sing this psalm? And question three, why would we sing this song. First, and this will be by way of just gauging where we're at, this will be the longest portion we'll take because we're going to spend most of our time looking at these verses and thinking through what they're saying and why people would have sung these words as they made pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And then we'll take a smaller amount of time in the last two questions. At least that's the plan. So we'll see how execution of the plan goes. Psalm 126, I believe, is broken into two parts. You have part one is verses one through three, and part two is verses four, five, and six. Look at the first phrase in verse one and how it matches the phrase in verse four. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, and it's seemingly in this translation and our understanding of this text looking at the past tense of what the Lord has done to restore fortunes. Then you see in verse 4, restore our fortunes here in the present tense as, as a prayer. So we're looking back in the past at what God did to restore fortunes, and then we're looking now that God would do it again. So if you wanted to summarize it in an easier way, in a nice alliterated fashion, part one, I would say, is present praise for prosperity in the past, verses 1 through 3. Present praise, because notice the way verse 3 
ends in the present tense. Because of what he did in the past, we now in the present are glad. So present praise with shouts of joy and wonderful singing because of the prosperity God gave his people in the past. That's verses 1 through 3. Verses 4, 5, and 6 is present prayer for prosperity hoped for in the future. So present praise for prosperity in the past, present prayer for prosperity in the future. That would be a way of summarizing these two halves. Like I said, the first verse and the fourth verse really are the key to understanding what's going on and why the Jews would sing this psalm. It's generally understood that this phrase that's repeated in verse 1 and verse 4 is the phrase, restored the fortunes of, could be translated maybe even in some of your Bibles, if you have a different translation, as returned back from captivity, and maybe this is the return of the Jews from the Babylonian captivity, maybe. It it could be a whole bunch of different things, though, because it's a general phrase that simply means the reverse of unhappy situations into a prosperous happy situation. As one translator commentator said, it is to turn the tide of Zion's fortune. And I don't believe there's enough evidence to determine specifically what that tide-turning event was. I think if we wanted to assume, it'd probably be safe to say the Babylonian captivity could be what's being said here. But when you compare verses 1 through 3 and verses 4, 5, and 6, you go from restore the fortunes and This could be from captivity, but then 4, 5, and 6 give you this agricultural language of sorrow in the midst of sowing and then joyful celebration in the midst of reaping. Maybe the context has more to do with some sort of just general catastrophe and drought or famine, and they're looking at what God did in the past, and they're praying, God, do that again in the present. So it's, it's hard to know for sure. But what do we do know for sure? Look at verse 1. The Lord. The Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. Whatever sort of circumstances took place, whether it was King Cyrus giving the decree to say the people of Israel could return back to the land. Make no mistake, brothers and sisters. The Jewish people understand that it was the Lord who is in charge. The Lord is the one who restored their fortunes, whatever those fortunes were that needed to be restored. And whatever it was, it was amazing, breathtaking. Look at the phrase in verse 1, we were like those who dream. This is a poetic way for them to say, pinch me. Am I dreaming here? This is amazing. This is like too good to be true. Something so real and so great has happened that you think you're dreaming. Now, a lot of times we have dreams, and they're so real that we think, wow, I was dreaming last night, and I woke up this morning, and I thought, did that just really happen? This is the exact opposite of that. It's walking through awake time during life and saying, this is so good, I I feel like I'm dreaming. That's what's being said here. Is this really happening? An illustration of this might be in the story of Joseph, if you're familiar in the story of Joseph in the later half of Genesis. Joseph is alive when his dad Jacob thinks he is dead. For years, 13 years, I think, give or take, that Jacob thinks his son Joseph has gone on to pass. And he finds out the news from Joseph's brothers. Joseph is still alive. And it says in Genesis 
his heart became numb for he could not. He had a difficult time believing them. That sort of reversal of fortunes when for 13 years one of your beloved sons is is dead in your mind, but then you find out, no, he is alive. From death to life, he became numb. I'm having such a hard time believing this. So, that's the context, I think, of this sort of reversal of fortunes and restoring of fortunes. Verse 2 says that it leads to great laughter and shouts of joy. Made me think of another time of deliverance in the Old Testament, not just the story of Joseph. What about the story of Exodus? The first song in the Bible, the first psalm, you could say. You know where that is? Exodus chapter 15. At least one of the uh, psalms of, of God's people in Exodus 15, right after God saved them from the hand of Pharaoh and saved them from the Red Sea and through the waters. And afterwards, they, they celebrate. They start singing. They say, I sing to the Lord. He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength. He is my song. He has become my salvation. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, and doing wonders? They sing with praise because of God's deliverance and salvation from these, what seem to be awful circumstances, slavery, captivity, and he delivers them. And so they sing with praise. The nations are then amazed and notice this. They say among the nations, the Lord has done great things. You see that at the end of verse 2, that when God does acts of deliverance, They are not small, puny acts. They are mighty, awesome, amazing, breathtaking acts of deliverance. That the the watching world looks and says, that's cool. That God is good. I was reading this week with my children the story of Daniel. And one of the things about the stories in the Old Testament, and this is one of the most important themes as you're reading the Old Testament, is realizing that God works in such a way through his people Not just to do cool things, but so that the world, the whole world will know that these are his people and he has blessed them. So in the story of Daniel in chapter 3, there's the famous scenario of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that wouldn't bow down before King Nebuchadnezzar. And when they find out that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire alive, the scriptures say that Nebuchadnezzar said, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Blessed be the God. Here you have a pagan God looking in at the deliverance God gave and says, blessed be that God. See, this is all through the Old Testament. Whatever deliverance story you want to bring up, it's going to give praise even from foreign gods and foreign, or foreign nations who worship foreign gods. They're saying, no, no, we're going to stop worshiping those foreign gods because this God is the one true God. There's no God like him. And so therefore, King Nebuchadnezzar makes a decree and says, any people from any nation or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they will be torn from limb to limb. What a reversal there in the story of Daniel. It happens again in chapter 6 when Daniel's in the lion's den. And then the king comes out and makes a decree and says, no, no, the God of Daniel is the living God who endures forever. When God acts, it is so great The world takes notice, that the nations admire. So surely then, if the world is watching and they're admiring what God has done, well, shouldn't God's people? And this is why you see that the 
Verse 2 does not end with the Lord has done great things for them. Verse 3, the Lord has done great things for us. For us. You know, it's one thing for you to see something awe-inspiring and be amazed with it. I was thinking of maybe ladies seeing uh, gentlemen bow down on one knee and propose to a, 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 a you know, the, the girlfriend and they get engaged. Get what I'm saying, right? <laughs> you ever see just an amazing proposal? We're like, oh, that's so cute and it warms your heart and you just get all excited. Well, what about when that guy is bowing down before you? See how that's, it's different. It's one thing to observe as an outsider, as being an outsider nation and saying the Lord has done great things. But it's something even better when the Lord has done great things for, for me, for us. That amazing act of love and kindness was for me. Men, if you're not sure what I'm talking about with the proposal thing, Maybe it's like watching a sports team do something amazing or win in stunning fashion. The Chicago Blackhawks down 3-1 to one in the first period. Oh no, the season's over, but reversal of fortunes, they win. Yes! It's one thing to see a team do that, but it's another thing when that's your team. And even more so, like when you're playing on that team, which is a whole nother topic for another day. Why we get so wrapped up, that's my team. But the point is this. It's one thing to watch something and see it and be amazed with it. It's another thing when that's happening to you. And that's what we have in this psalm. In part one, it ends with them saying, we are glad because God has done this, not just spectacular thing and praise God, but he has done this for us. He has reversed our fortunes. And so in present praise, We see the prosperity he has delivered us in the past. And notice the way that confidence in knowing what God is like and the sort of deliverance he brings, whether it's out of famine, out of drought, out of captivity from Pharaoh in Egypt, out of Babylonian captivity, out of the lion's den or the fire. God seems to do it again and again. So what do they do in verse 4? They presently pray for this prosperity in the future. They pray, restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negeb. And at this point, most of us are like, huh? What? What's a Negeb? Well, it seems to have to do with water. The Negeb would have been a a very dry, desert-like region. And so the streams would have oftentimes been dried up. So imagine a, a Mississippi River, but no water in it. But then the rainy seasons come, and it starts rushing with water. The mountains that have snow that start to melt during the summertime, and then the the waters cascade down. And so now what used to be a a very dusty, dry, dirty place is now lush. It's got life. It's got water flowing through it. Everything was brown is now green, and there's flowers alongside of these riverbanks. That's the picture here. Like that, God, we feel like we are dried up. We feel like there is no life within us. So restore our fortunes like the streams with water rushing through the riverbeds. Like that, God, we need life. And then you get verses 5 and 6. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. 
I asked myself quite a while, why are they sowing in tears? What, what's going on here? Is farming really sad work? Is there a difficult circumstance? Again, there's, there's not clarity here. But if we take the flow of everything that's happened so far, I think it's pretty obvious, don't you? There is some difficult situations that God's people are facing. And so they are in great times of desperation. And as they sow their seed, imagine it being like, this is the last of my seed bag. And if we don't get a harvest, we've got nothing. Sowing in tears. These are your only hope. By faith, you go out and you sow them again. Knowing that drought and the lack of rain has not produced a harvest for years, we need you this time, God, because we can't do it on our own. So you trust in God, the one who brings the harvest, and you sow in your tears, and then in his kindness and goodness, you get a bountiful, abundant harvest, and you reap with shouts of joy. Especially if, if you're at the very end of your seed bag, and there's just nothing left, and I've got no hope. And he blesses you and overwhelms you at the very last minute. These are the sort of deliverances we see all through the Old Testament and the picture we should have. We trust God to bring prosperity even when it doesn't look like there will be any. When you can't control the rain, you can't make the seed grow. And so in tears, you sow. But his abundant faithfulness will bring back a harvest. The sheaves is, is just the word for bundles of grain. So there's just bundles and bundles of harvest that is to be gathered. And that's what we pray for. Do it again, God. You've done it in the past. Do it again. So this would be why an Old Testament Jewish person would have sang this song. They would have found themselves in sorrow, in difficulty. And they would have known in the past deliverance that what joy it brings to remind themselves of what God has done. And since God's deliverance had not been full, so one example of this could have been as the people of Israel were being brought back into their land from Babylonian captivity, it, it was like in shifts. There was three different groups that came back. And so maybe this psalm was written after group one or group two, but not everybody had been fully restored. So they experienced the joy and the excitement of, yes, God, look, at this is amazing. We're back. We're not under captivity anymore. But there's still some people that aren't back yet. So we pray, God, do it again. Restore us again. Bring them back safely again. Something like this seems to be the context of the psalm. So we ask our second question. Why would Jesus sing this psalm? And this is a strange question, isn't it not? Let's just close the sermon. We've, we've exposited the text. Here's what it means. We've explained it. Why bring Jesus into this? We're reading the Old Testament. These are for Jewish people. So let's just explain why the Jews sang the psalm, and let's have a good merry day, and be done with it. The reason we don't do that is because everything you see God do in the Old Testament, we understand is a picture, a signpost of what God will do in and through Jesus Christ. So I don't know if this is a surprise to you. This is not a Jewish synagogue. So we can't just read the Old Testament and give you faithful lessons about what God would do to rescue Israel and then close up the sermon and say, all right, we're done. This is a Christian church as a Christian church, we believe in both the Old and New Testament, and the way they speak in the New Testament is that Jesus is the great fulfillment of all you see in the Old Testament. 
So as kind of a little parenthesis note before we move on to answer this question of how and why Jesus sings this, we need to realize that Jesus was called the Son of God. That's probably not news to anybody. Yeah, I've heard that before. And a lot of you, when you hear that, you're probably thinking Son of God, meaning the divinity, the, the godness of Jesus. But you know, there's a whole lot more to that name than just Jesus is the Son of God, which means he is the God in flesh. Part of the reason why Jesus is called the Son of God, the New Testament authors explain, is because Jesus is the new Israel. Do you realize that in Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, Israel was a child and the Lord loved him, and out of Egypt he called his son. Did you realize that Israel is called the son of God? And that's not a strange phrase. In fact, Adam was called the son of God. Look at Luke chapter 3, the genealogy of Jesus. It goes from Jesus and Joseph and then all the way back, and it says, and then Adam, the first human, the son of God. So this language is not just primarily or exclusively given to Jesus to say, well, Jesus is the son of God as the divine man. It's trying to say a whole lot more than that, that and so much more. What it's saying is that Jesus is the new son of God, the final son of God, the ultimate son of God, just as he is the new Israel. So in that passage I just referenced where we have the genealogy of of Jesus, son of, son of, son of, all the way from Adam, the first son of God. We have Jesus, and in that moment, Luke puts next to this genealogy the baptism of Jesus. Do you all know what happens at the baptism of Jesus? Jesus is baptized down in the water. The Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove. And in this wonderful, mystical, mysterious moment, we hear the words from heaven say what? This is my son. The Son of God is not Adam. The Son of God is not Israel. God's Son is fully and finally Jesus. This is my Son. Friends, if you're not understanding in the course of the flow of the Bible, the the bigness of the moment of Jesus' baptism and the the words of God coming out of heaven, this is my Son, you need to realize that a whole lot more is happening than just saying, oh yeah, that's my Son, the second person of the Trinity, the God man. This is my true Son the new Israel, the new Adam. And what happens right after the baptism of Jesus? The Holy Spirit leads him into the wilderness. And in the wilderness, he is tempted for, uh, what, 40 days? And if you know your Bible at all, you know that Israel, the former son of God, was tempted in the wilderness, and they failed for 40 years they were punished. But Jesus didn't fail. So you see, if if we read the Bible in its fullness, we see that all of these Old Testament stories are pointing as signs to a greater son, a greater Israel, the Son of God, Jesus. So friends, this is why when we get to Psalm 126, we start to take the themes and the truths we find from Psalm 126, and we need to ask ourselves, I wonder how Jesus fulfills these things, becomes these things, is these things as the greater Son of God. And the answer, I think, is quite obvious. If the main themes of this psalm are exile and restoration, the reverse of the curse, sorrow turning into joy and death into life, well, doesn't that sound like the gospel of Jesus Christ? Isn't that exactly what God does with his greater and final son, Jesus, the new Israel? When Israel sinned, they were sent out of God's presence. They were banished and they were exiled. Jesus 
was sent out by God's presence and exiled, but not for his sins, but because of our sins, the sins of the whole world. Israel would repent, and because of their repentance, they would be able to have their fortunes returned and restored and brought back into their land. When we see Israel rejoicing because of the great reversal given to them, the deliverance, they're laughing, they're shouting, they're having a hard time believing it. Pinch me, is this for real? How much more through Jesus Christ, when God restores from exile all of us who have been banished from God's presence. Not just the nation of Israel, but when we repent of our sins and put our faith in Jesus Christ. This signpost is just a picture of exile and restoration that happened with Israel and the great rejoicing that comes when restoration happens. That's Psalm 126. But friends, times that by a thousand. Jesus Christ's restoration from our exile and the nation's exile is going to be far greater. It should lead to great laughter. (laughs) I can't believe. I can't believe it. This is too good to be true. This is awesome. That's the sort of response when the reverse of the curse happens. Israel was blessed for their obedience and cursed for their disobedience. The curses were often on the land. They were given drought or famine like we see in verses 4, 5, and 6. Oh, we need the streams to flow like the Negev. We need our fortunes restored and renewed. But with Jesus, the curse of our disobedience does not happen because of his disobedience, but because of our disobedience. And the curse that should have fell on us was falling on his head. Galatians 3 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So whether it's the theme of blessing and curses, like the cursing of the land, or whether it's exile and restoration, Jesus was exiled and banished, or whether it's the theme sorrow and joy, don't we find that the scriptures speak of Jesus the suffering servant, the man of sorrows, rejected by man, acquainted with much grief. Jesus, the final son, knew sorrow like all of us and then some. Death would be swallowed up by life as he rose again from the dead. His sorrows would have been because of sin, his death because of our sin, but his joys are because of the great resurrection that he would bring together all the people from all the nations. His resurrection would bring life. As John chapter 12 says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So Jesus sows with his tears his body into the ground and dies. But praise be to God, he is raised again from the dead so that there would be much laughing and much rejoicing and sorrow gets turned to joy. This is why this psalm is not just a psalm for Israel. It's for the people who believe in Jesus, the new Israel, the better final Israel. That's us, the church. So why should we sing this? That's our last question. Why should we sing this psalm? What lessons can we learn? Well, if the psalm is broken into two parts, two simple observations for us. If God's people in the past We're praising him for the prosperity he brought. How much more should we? As one commentator wrote, the whole work of God's redemption is so stupendous. 
I just stopped. I was like, that's a great word, right? This captures this psalm well. The, the work of redemption is stupendous. In its scheme, in its execution, and its application, for all eternity, God's people will not cease to admire this redemption. How can any poor sinner who is saved by God's grace, snatched from the brand of eternal burning, ever cease to celebrate the amazing love of God and the wonders that he has wrought? We must join along with the psalmist and sing, the Lord has restored our fortunes and we are like men who dream. This is too good to be true. I ask you, friend, do you understand the message of the Bible as so incredibly, stupendously good that it's almost too good to be true? If it's not coming to you in that sort of way, there's a good chance you've misunderstood the message. It's often a good sign when you're sharing the gospel with a lost person that doesn't understand the Bible, and you tell them, it is by grace alone, through the work of Christ alone, on the cross, resurrected from the dead. There is hope beyond the grave. When you share that message, and they're like, no, no, it can't be that easy. It can't be that good. There's just no way it can be that good. Yes, it's that good. That's why it's called a gospel. It's good news. It's the best news ever, ever, ever. And we can't stop thinking about it because when we do, we will realize it will lead to our joy, our laughing. We can laugh and have joy. This isn't superficial, shallow laughing. This is eternal, deep longing. Even in the midst of our tears in this life, we can have deep, abiding joy because there is a past restoration through Jesus Christ that we need to remind ourselves of regularly. Our mouths full of laughter. Friends, this should describe members of Embassy Church, that more often than not, yes, there will be sad, difficult days, but more often than not, laughter and joy because we're regularly looking at what God has done in the past. He has already saved us in the past. It's already done. Your future is established. So, two years ago, two and a half years ago, in fact, the first ever meeting of Embassy Church happened at Sam and Erica's house. Most of you were not in that room. But in that meeting, I said, the job of the pastor of Embassy Church, whether it's me or whoever else is here, is to be your tour guide. Maybe some of you remember this. I said, I would like to be the tour guide through the scriptures that takes you on a journey and points out through the scriptures as God gives us week after week after week to go through books of the Bible and continue showing, we always end up right there at the cross. My job as your pastor, and this is how you should judge faithfulness in preaching, is does the pastor treat this like a tour guide that finally takes you to the last and final awe-inspiring moment and then just kind of slip away? All right, you guys just gaze at the cross. You guys just stare at that beauty and let your hearts be filled with joy and your mouths with laughter and singing. That's what we're here to do, friends. We are here to gaze at the great restoration God has done, not just for Israel, but for us in Jesus Christ. How amazing is it that this psalm says that the nations are looking and seeing the way God saves, and they are saying, God has done great things, wow! 
but because of the cross. The nations don't have to just look as outsiders. It's now the nations saying, God has done great things for us, including you and me. Most of you in this room are not Jews. You are not God's chosen ethnic people, and you get to say God has done great things, not just in general, but for us, for me. Therefore, we continue to preach the gospel faithfully week in and week out like a tour guide, lead you to the cross and slip away so you stop looking at Phil and you say, that is my hope, that is my joy, that is my life. Whatever you are going through, friend, know that there is a fixed event in history, done, sealed, paid for on the cross. So we should sing this song to help us, remind us, we should be glad, Christians should be glad full of joy. Christianity is not a duty religion. Just do my job. Be a faithful follower of Jesus. That's part of it. But man, is that's your view of Christianity. You're missing it. God is not the cosmic killjoy trying to make sure. Don't have fun. Please, stop trying to have fun. I am to ensure no fun happens. That's what the commandments are for, obviously. Take your fun away. The picture of the Bible is that God loves to bless his people, not only by restoring them when they get themselves in mess, but by even by blessing them with his commandments so you can experience the fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. So just like the people of Israel, we should praise God in the present right now and thank him for all that he has done for us already. I think this is true not just because of what he's done for us on the cross, but two years has God not blessed this church? That's why I said what I did just a few moments ago in our members meeting earlier today. My heart is full when I think back. Look at what God has already done. What he's already done to this church. What he's already done for us. When we think and sink, and, and, and sink our, our minds into the, the good things God has already done, I think our hearts should be full of great joy. I think they will be full of great joy. So that's the first reason. The second reason is we should sing this psalm because God's still going to do great things. Verses 4, 5, and 6, just as verses 1, 2, and 3 apply to us, and even more so those who are followers of Jesus, verses 4, 5, and 6 apply to us, that God still will be doing great things again and again in this church, in your heart, in the lives of those you love, those outside of this room, the nations that have yet to believe, and one day, the restoration of all things, all peoples, all nations, everything culminating in his final return. That was our scripture reading in the New Testament from John chapter 16. In a little while, I will leave. But then in a little while, I will come back. And that's why great sorrow will turn to great joy. Read that passage over again and see it in this light. Sorrow turning to joy because Christ, who once came to make restoration on the cross, is going to make full and final restoration for all time when he returns again. So this is why we can weep. This is why we can sow in tears. And even during the difficult days of our lives and the difficult moments, we can experience sowing in tears but have hope of future joy. You know, one of the reasons why we don't even want to get out and sow anything is because we're afraid. We're afraid of experiencing sorrow 
because we don't think it will come to an end. You ever thought about that? I'm afraid to experience sorrow and therefore get my life messy and involved with other people because I'm afraid the sorrow is just never going to end. Friend, you have to th- realize this psalm, the words of Scripture, the story of Scripture, turns all sorrow into joy. In fact, our sorrow produces joy. When we read that our momentary afflictions are producing for us an even greater reward. We read the Bible all together. We realize sorrow and joy come together in the most beautiful ways. So we should care for those who are lost even when it causes us to weep. Sow seeds of the gospel out through all the nations so that they can say, God has done great things for us. Even when that causes us great pain to see the people that we love hurting. How sad, this is a a quote from one of the books I read this week, how sad will be the state of those who never accept the gospel and are content to find all their good things in this life. Having rejoiced and laughed, but only for a few moments on this earth, to go to an eternity where nothing awaits them but eternal weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. In that moment, I just was like, sorrow turning to greater sorrow. This is why we work diligently and pray fervently. God, restore again the fortunes of the people we love and the nations that are lost because we would like to see sorrow turn into joy for everyone. Friend, do you have enough hope in God's promise to deliver sorrow to joy that you're willing to get in the dirty, messy areas of life and weep? Tim Keller put it this way, are you joyful enough that you can take the courage to do things in life that will cause you to weep. Are you happy enough to weep, essentially? Meaning, will you make choices this week, this year, in your life, to embrace the sorrows and the hurt and the pain of this world so you can advance the goodness of God's message in the gospel and therefore extend the good news that sorrow can turn to joy? Or the alternative would be sorrow turns to everlasting weeping. Let's pray that God would give us the grace to do that. Let's pray. Our Father, we want to thank you for the works you have done in the past. That as we look back on them, it gives us present joy Our mouths should be filled with laughter. It should make us want to sing with hearts full. Even if tears come down our eyes, our hearts can be full of great joy. We want to thank you, God, for the goodness of your plan and your promise and your word. The overarching story that doesn't end in Psalm 126 with a captivity being delivered from Babylon or whatever. We're so thankful this morning that the The themes we're seeing in this psalm are the universal themes of your story in Jesus Christ and that we have hope. We have hope that goes beyond the grave. Death turns into life. Curses turn into blessing. Exile turns into restoration. 
being rejected turns into being accepted. God, what wonderful truths. Press them deep down into our hearts and may they fuel our prayer for those who have yet to believe and receive it. May they fuel our desire to go out into the world and spread this message to those who are weeping. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to take the Lord's Supper and sing the power of the cross and meditate further on the reversal of the cross. This time of reflection should be given to those and received to those who have already accepted the goodness of this message. Do you believe that sorrow turns into joy through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus? Are you a follower and believer in this message? Is it too good to be true? Those are all good signs that this bread and cup that passes is for you this morning. In fact, it's for all of us. It's for all of us in one sense that you should receive this bread and cup as this is too good to be true, that this bread and cup is a symbol of the salvation God has done for me. If you believe that, then